This is The Guardian. Today, why more and more people in Britain are turning to private healthcare and away from the NHS. My name is Carl Bolton. I'm retired. I live in the northwest of England, between Preston and Blackpool. When Carl gave up work, he threw himself into a hobby that fitted his new pace of life, beekeeping. My wife used to laugh at me because on a sunny day, I would take a stool down to the bottom of the garden where the bees are and just put my stool next to the hives and watch the bees going about their business. <laughs> it's not a dangerous hobby, but it does have one obvious hazard. So being stung is part and parcel of being a beekeeper. And over the years, I've been stung many, many times. The last time I got stung, I wasn't even tending the bees. I was picking up windfall fruit off the garden. So I only had a t-shirt on and I picked up a pear and there was a bee on it and she flew up my t-shirt sleeve and she stung me in the armpit. I, I immediately knew something was off. It, it didn't feel like a regular sting. Carl felt weak as if his legs might buckle. He was dizzy, pale. His wife quickly drove him to the local pharmacy. The sweat was pouring off me, it's horrendous, and the pharmacist said, we need to ring 999. And the pharmacist had an EpiPen, and she whacked me in the thigh with the EpiPen pretty hard. Honestly, within minutes, I started to feel better. The paramedic said it was a matter of urgency that I go to the GP. And that's what I did. The GP said that Carl had to get rid of his bees immediately. His condition could be life-threatening. An emergency appointment was scheduled for the immunology department at the local hospital. I got the letter pretty quickly, actually. So this was in late September, I think. And the letter came and it said, your appointment is in November. And I thought, well, that's not bad. That's pretty quick. And then my wife said, well, hold on, it's November 2023. Carl was left stunned. I can't wait a year, really, for something that is potentially life-saving, the, the EpiPen. Frustrated, Carl looked online to see if he had any other options. To get that EpiPen, I think you have to tick a box saying you've been prescribed this or, or something along those lines, which I've not. Morally, I, I, I just cannot do that. I can't lie. So I'm going to have to go private to get one. Despite a health service that promises universal health care free at the point of use, one in eight adults paid for private medical care in the past year, and the numbers are growing rapidly. As it prepares to turn 75 this summer, the NHS is battling staff shortages crumbling hospitals, the COVID backlog, and now strikes. The fight for its future is greater than it has ever known. From The Guardian, I'm Noshin Ekbal. Today in Focus, going private, the patients who can't wait for NHS care.
Dennis Campbell, you're The Guardian's health policy editor. We've just been hearing from Carl, who feels he's being forced into using private health care as a result of having to wait over a year for NHS treatment. Now, not everyone feels comfortable talking openly about going private in the UK. Lots of people see it as an embarrassing secret. Can you explain why that is? First of all, I think that there's such a, a strong attachment to the DNA in the UK that people feel they're sort of letting the NHS down by going private. And also think that it has been seen in years gone by as sort of a sign that really you've got more money than you perhaps have admitted to with your friends, that you've actually got the money to spend on having some sort of private procedure or And obviously, the other reason for embarrassment is that people haven't wanted to be seen to be jumping the queue to get treatment ahead of people who waited previously months and these days, sometimes years to get treatment. Britain has always had a small private healthcare sector because we've had the NHS. And it was the number of people in the population who pay for private medical insurance or get it as a a, a perk at work has always been quite small. At the moment, it's about 11.5% of the population. So roughly one in nine of us have private medical insurance. Dennis, British people do feel really deeply about the NHS. It goes beyond seeing it as a public service and it's a genuine point of national pride. I mean, there is a reason why Danny Boyle put it in the heart and centre of his 2012 Olympic ceremony or why people felt moved to clap on their doorsteps for the NHS during the pandemic. It is a unique proposition, free healthcare at the point of access. Can you tell me what has happened historically then when politicians have attempted to privatise parts of it Or, as recently the former health secretary, Sajid Javid, said, suggests that we pay for some services. Any privatisation of NHS services has always been, by definition, as you would expect, very controversial. We saw that whenever Tony Blair's Labour government in the early 2000s used the private sector to help tackle the scandalous waiting times uh, that he had inherited from John Major's Conservative government in 1997. For the first time... The NHS and the private sector in a proper partnership to deliver healthcare, and for the first time, money set aside specifically to get rid of the dirty corridors, the poor food, the mixed sex wards which demoralise patients and staff alike. Uh, and we've seen it with other extensions of privatisation since into, into different sorts of care. Because people feel that, you know, the NHS gets a lot of money and if it's looked after properly by governments, it should be able to do its job properly and that handing money over to private companies to provide care to NHS patients uh, out of the NHS budget is inherently wrong. So recently, Sajid Javid, who was the health secretary until last July, uh, floated the idea that people should pay both to see a GP and to attend A&E. Um, and you suggested, like many other countries, including, I think, Canada and Ireland and many places in Europe, that there should be a charge for going to the GP. So one yeah. of the things that I've suggested is this issue of uh, what you might broadly call a contributory principle. And when you look across Europe, in Europe, many countries, all countries, have universal health care systems. But the one thing that they all have to help fund their health service alongside taxation is a contributory principle. He said that the British people's deep embedded love of the NHS was basically uh, having what he called a chilling effect on discussion of ideas that he said, from his point of view, are needed to try and uh, get the NHS back to where it needs to be in terms of money and their and ultimately performance. Savage Javid is obviously wrong. This is a cop-out excuse from the Tories 
for the Tories about the mess they've created. An admin fee, can you imagine the cost of just collecting those a nominal fee anyway? The trouble with what uh, those specific proposals and others that we've seen from other places on the right of politics, think tanks in particular, is that they all undermine the basis that we've always had with the NHS, which is tax-funded payer system free at the point of delivery where everyone can get it. Dennis, before the pandemic hit, the stats suggest that 183,000 people had private health insurance and that 47,000 people paid entirely out of their own pocket for their treatment. Those so-called self-payers, the numbers have since gone up by 20,000. What does that tell us? So the truth is that the numbers are still quite small, but the fear is that what's currently kind of a sort of something like a trickle will become a stream, become a river, become a flood, possibly quite quickly because of the the routine delays for care. So, you know, 67,000 people self-funding, you know, going private, as we call it, in a quarter in a population of 66 million is not that many, but the numbers are going up now quite quickly. What does the health of the NHS look like right now? And is that why so many increasing numbers of people are turning to private health care? The NHS is widely described by uh, politicians, uh, commentators, NHS staff groups, leading doctors, etc., many staff who work in it, as broken. What most people who use that phrase mean is that its ability to do its job, to give us all the quality care we need quickly, that is broken, that is gone. The NHS can no longer give people, uh, in, in many cases, a, a GP appointment quickly, mental health care quickly. People across the UK are meant to be treated at a within four hours. Not much more than half people get that now. Waits for hospital beds are very, very long. And crucially, in England, the number of people waiting for an operation in hospital has now gone up to 7.2 million. 7.2 million. I mean, by far the worst it's ever been. Anyone needing NHS care now, generally you're going to wait and wait possibly a long time and wait probably the longest people as far as records began, have ever waited. And that is the key thing, the key driver that is fueling the ongoing kind of growth and surge in private medicine we're seeing. Danielle, could you introduce yourself to me? Tell me a bit about yourself. Where do you live? What do you do? I'm Danielle Mitchell. I live in Hastings in East Sussex. I work with people in recovery from drugs and alcohol. I absolutely love it. And I do like to do a lot of volunteering in the community as well. I just love seeing people change, knowing that I've helped them. And what about your physical health in recent years? Can you tell me a bit about what's going on with you. So in 2008, I um, kept collapsing. And after lots of investigation, I was diagnosed with Arnold Chiari malformation, which is basically a hernia attached to my brain. And yeah, I've learned to live with it over the years. I live permanently with a headache at the base of my skull. I have shoulder issues because of that as well. I have to limit what I do. I have to be careful with laughing because if I laugh too hard, I can black out. I'm really concerned if there's any illnesses going around because if I pick something up, it makes it 
more heightened for me. I can't cough without collapsing. You just get on with it, though, don't you? And am I right in understanding there has been a turning point that it actually did start getting worse? We don't actually know what happened, but all of a sudden I started getting pains at the top of my head where literally it was like someone dropping a hammer on top of my head and then the pain just radiating down my whole body and crucifying me, really. Then I was advised to go to A&E um, where they'd done an up-to-date MRI scan and that was sent to the consultant in London who said, there's no change in my Chiari. So what I was experiencing was something different. So, so what happened next? Presumably you're, you're referred to a neurologist? I was referred via the GP to see a neurologist at my local hospital in August. And they sent me a letter to say that if I hadn't heard anything from them by the 20th of October, then I was to contact them, which I did. And I was advised that there's a 31-week wait to see a neurologist at my local hospital. Oh, wow. Danielle, can you tell me a bit about what the quality of your life has been like while you've been waiting? There wasn't a quality of life. (laughs) I was scared to go out in case I fell over and caused more damage. I had no trigger signs when these attacks were going to happen. So I just stayed in. I couldn't concentrate. My memory issues were terrible. I was arguing with my GP about where I lived because she asked my address and I'd give her one from 20 years ago. So it was really horrible. I isolated pretty much everybody, to be fair, because I don't, I'm quite a strong person and I don't like people seeing me like that. So I would put off people coming around and, you know, people did care and the phone was still going, but I kind of just ignored everybody because I didn't want to speak to people. Do you remember how you felt when you got the call that it's a 31-week wait? What went through your mind at that point? I can't live like this for 31 weeks. Absolutely, I couldn't. I had had enough by that point. It's horrible being in pain every day. Because of my memory issues, I've really thought I had Alzheimer's coming on, the onsets of Alzheimer's. I'm only 45. When I went to call my dad that died 15 years ago, I knew I had issues. You know, I picked up the phone because I hadn't heard from him. I knew then that I couldn't wait that long. I knew I had to go private. And so what did that then look like and what did that involve? Well, first of all, I had to get my birthday and Christmas money from everybody to pay for it. So I'd done a bit of research on the internet and found a really nice consultant in Haywards Heath about an hour and a half away and booked an appointment. So how, if you don't mind me asking, how much, how much did it cost for that initial appointment? £295. And what were you then told? What did you find out? Um, that it was a thunderclap headaches. I I described what I felt and he was really lovely with the consultant and went through a lot of other issues with me and that's what he said from the clap headaches. He gave me some medication and touch wood. We seem to be okay going forward. I haven't had to go back to him. You know, don't get me wrong, I'm not out of the woods. They're still occurring, but not the six, seven a day. 
but if I was still, I still haven't heard from the NHS from my appointment. How do you feel about the fact that for yourself, for something so serious, you have had to go private? I think it's disgusting because I pay my taxes, I work hard and not be able to get an appointment. Don't get me wrong, I don't expect it within a matter of days. I expect to wait, but to wait 31 weeks is a disgrace. As a final question, Danielle, how worried do you feel about the NHS being able to recover from the position that it's currently in? I really don't think it's going to be able to recover. I, I think you'd need an unlimited purse to plough the money into it. I, I personally feel that the way forward is private healthcare. Oh God, and how does that make you feel? As long as they stop me paying tax for it, I'm happy to put that money into private healthcare. I shouldn't have to pay for a service that I'm not getting. Dennis, it does sometimes feel like the NHS is in this never-ending crisis with its future continually thrown into doubt. Was there ever a golden period for the NHS? I think probably actually the golden period for the NHS was actually, Nosheen, quite recently. Some doctors would say that it was, again, on the base of statistics, would say that 2008, not that long ago, you know, less than 15 years ago was the uh, time when the NHS was performing the best. That is, for the people who needed care, most people got care quickly, and that was A&E uh, and, and operations in, in particular, and also access to GPs was not such an issue then. But it came off the back of a government that had put a lot more money than had been seen for many, many years, and also made a, a, a virtue rightly, of increasing, bulking up the staff that the NHS had to do its job. So a sustained long-term proper investment and a proper workforce strategy, the two things together, help yield then, surprise, surprise, the best performance statistics the NHS ever recorded. And therefore, for patients, it worked very, very well. Okay, so if it is really being starved of the funding that it needs now, how much does it actually need to survive and to thrive? All health economists and health think tanks in this country would say that the NHS needs generally 4% year-on-year real terms increase in its budget every year. Particularly now, as we've known for years, we have an ageing population. That's the key driver of the extra demand that we're seeing. Uh, We've also got a growing population. Our population is now up to sort of 66 million. So whenever you know, as we've known for a long time, these two phenomena, ageing, growing population, you need to put at least that minimum 4%. But the coalition government that David Cameron led that came in in 2010, they decided through austerity to put only about 1% or 1.5% in between roughly 2010 and 2019. And then Theresa May, followed by Boris Johnson, and now uh, under Rishi Sunak, are now putting much closer to the 4% a year that we actually need. But the trouble is, the real reason Oshin, the NHS is in such a bad state now is that you know roughly a decade of underinvestment and leaving the staffing gap to grow and grow and grow has left the NHS in a really fragile, perilous position now, unable to do its job properly. Well, that underinvestment and the gap in staffing levels must really be taking a toll on patients as well. What do we know about how they feel about the NHS right now? 
And how has that changed over time? So we know from studies that are done, surveys that are done, that uh, at the moment there is a growing dissatisfaction with the NHS broadly and that that is directly linked to the delays for care. We're also seeing something now that NHS staff and NHS staff groups are increasingly vocal about, which is a sharp recent rise in verbal and sometimes physical abuse and aggression of NHS staff. That is a new phenomenon. I think the two taken together, the historic very close bond, the emotional and physical and practical and psychological ties between the British population and the NHS, I think is now under some strain. And that's something that potentially allied with these ideas now that being promoted from people on the right of politics, that we should look to examine the model of the NHS. The two of them together potentially could become politically difficult for a government to deal with. Dennis, we've been hearing from some patients who feel they've been forced to turn to private health care when they may never have done so in the past. They may not have even been able to afford it. Does that tally with the kind of stories that you're now reporting on? So people now we know are going private because their condition is causing them inconvenience, perhaps limiting their mobility, maybe causing them pain. And it's just limiting their ability to lead a normal life. I'm thinking of a, a friend of mine whose mother in her 80s got cataracts and waited ages and ages and ages just to get the assessment appointment, much less the very brief hospital procedure. It only takes 15, 20 minutes to have a cataract taken out. And I had very blurred vision as a result of it, fell over in her home, broke several ribs and ended up in hospital for weeks as a result of that. Uh, the same friend's mum paid ultimately to have her cataracts taken out and then a couple of years later confronted with a very, very long waiting time to get her heart condition operated on, decided to spend just north of £10,000 to have a heart operation. I'm thinking of a, a relative of mine who in the last six years has had to pay privately for when her first child was born, her baby daughter had a tongue tie. The NHS said it will take six months before we can get around to doing the very short operation to do this. She said, well, in six months time, the tongue tie will basically have really affected my newborn baby's chance to learn to feed properly. I can't wait and paid to go to a private clinic to have that done. I'm also thinking about a friend of mine who actually who works in the NHS who was really crippled with pain with a condition called hip bursitis and she was told uh, she had to wait a, a year just to get the physiotherapy appointment to diagnose what the problem was, was facing a wait of many, many months more just to get the brief simple injection she needed to take away her pain and injection of steroids. She just paid privately 250 quid, short procedure, and she enjoyed many months of being pain-free afterwards as a result of giving up a short time of her morning to go and get that job one day. Coming up, could Britain be creeping towards an Americanized healthcare system? Dennis, you've told us about the growing dissatisfaction with the NHS and the relatively small but fast-growing number of patients turning to the private sector. But what about the people who work in it? How is private healthcare staffed in this country? Private hospital groups in the UK employ about 8,000 nurses 
but only instantly about 600 doctors of their own. In other words, they only employ a tiny number of doctors directly, given there are roughly a quarter of a million doctors in the UK. What they rely on is the roughly 8,500 NHS doctors to come and do a day here, a day there, as a surgeon, as an anaesthetist, as some other sort of specialist, to, in order to service the market they've got. So it's an unusual business model in that uh, most of the staff, certainly pretty much uh, almost all of the doctors, are employed as contractors. How do we know about how those doctors feel about working in private healthcare settings? They've forged their career with the NHS and then they're doing a couple of days here or there. I mean, does that take away from the NHS work? Is that part of why the waiting lists are so long? Or is there an acceptance that this is something that they just need to do? Doctors I know and doctors I've spoken to who do private work, they nearly always feel a bit grubby about it because they know that the NHS has basically paid for their training uh, and given them the opportunities to become the doctors they are. And they do feel that they're sort of uh, broadly that, that they are being a bit disloyal to the NHS by then doing some private work as well. But for those doctors who can get it, uh, particularly in, in London where the private healthcare market is well developed, if you're good at what you do, there is often a, a chance to to do some private work, which is very, very well paid. I know that some, some private doctors charge just for a, an initial half hour assessment appointment to discuss your condition, much less before you get to the treatment itself. That could be anything from sort of 250 quid to 500 quid just for half an hour for the doctors. I think the other thing is that as doctors' earnings have fallen by sort of roughly 20% over the last 10 years or so, doctors have seen the opportunity to do some private healthcare work is something that they actually feel they have to do just to keep up their earnings, to pay their mortgage, to pay their bills, to look after their family. So Dennis, as we see more and more people look for ways around the long waits on the NHS, are we seeing private healthcare companies and insurers move in to take advantage of that space? And then what does that look like? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're very much seeing that at the moment now. I think the private healthcare sector in the UK realises that for them, uh, to, to be absolutely candid, that, that the disaster that is worsening NHS treatment waiting times is an opportunity for them. Last year, a very, there was a very significant development. The Cleveland Clinic, which is a big hospital in Cleveland, Ohio, in the US, opened up, spent pretty much a billion pounds building from scratch a massive new private healthcare hospital in central London on the site of the former US Embassy in Grosvenor Square in Mayfair and is employing doctors reputedly in salaries up to £350,000 a year. They are taking a big, big, big gamble financially that the private healthcare market in the, in the UK, which is starting to really power ahead now, will continue to do so for years because they obviously have done this on the basis of market predictions and expectations of consumer behaviour. Well, we started this conversation talking about how privatisation of healthcare has been a no-go zone in British politics. But if people like Danielle, who we heard from earlier, are losing faith in the system and feeling hard done by and that they are effectively paying twice to see a doctor, first through their taxes, then through their savings... What could the political impact of all this be in the long term? It's interesting that you've now got a Labour Party led by Keir Starmer with the Shadow Health Secretary, Wes Streeting, who are both of them talking openly about how the NHS, probably for years to come under a potential Labour government, 
will have to continue relying on the private sector to treat NHS-funded patients. There'll be much, much less of a debate than there is now about the model of NHS funding. And I think a lot of that will go away because a Labour government would almost certainly put more money into the NHS and launch a staffing plan to try and get the NHS back on its feet. However, even if it does that, and Starmer has sort of broadly pledged to do that, it would take many years to have some impact. It takes years for even generous real increase in funding and the staffing to come together to bring waiting times down and get them back down to what they should be. So therefore, I think we are only going to see more and more people going private for years to come. Dennis, more and more employers, including, I should say, The Guardian, are offering private healthcare to their employees. Is there a sense that this could lead to a creep towards the US system and or that we are creating a two-tier system of healthcare in Britain? I think we'd all be kidding ourselves if we didn't accept that we already have a two-tier healthcare system to some degree. I think people who uh, sort of say, oh, we're going to end up very quickly like America, I don't buy that at all. I think uh, the American healthcare system is not something I think will ever be replicated in my lifetime in this country. I think it would take many, many decades before we get anywhere near the numbers we see in America. Dennis, when you speak to people in the NHS, do they feel threatened by private providers? I think most people I speak to, most doctors and and NHS bosses I speak to are pretty pragmatic. The NHS has sent NHS patients to private hospitals now for the better part of 20 years. That trend will continue even under Labour government. Keir Starmer has been quite explicit about that. And I think uh, most people I speak to, particularly doctors, are pretty philosophical, pretty phlegmatic about it. They're just, it's, it's here to stay. And with NHS delays and the general state of the NHS, it's likely, I think, to keep on growing. Dennis, thank you so much. Thank you, Noshin. That was Dennis Campbell, The Guardian's health policy editor. Do follow Dennis's reporting on the NHS and the strikes this week at theguardian.com. And that's it for today. This episode was produced by Natalie Khatena and Joe Glanville. Sound design is by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producer was Phil Maynard. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.